Welcome to Lean Back. I'm Lisa. And I'm Laura. And today we're talking about mistakes. And I was interested in talking about mistakes because I feel like I've seen a lot of this in my professional life lately, where people are afraid of making mistakes. And so they would rather do nothing or hide or avoid what they perceive to be as conflict rather than be called out or make a misstep or have some sort of conflict that might open them to critique. I I think that's an interesting place to start, like being afraid of mistakes, because I think that we don't have a good narrative around mistakes. Like it's something that most people don't broadcast. And so it's kind of a personal struggle whenever you do make a mistake, which you will, (laughs) Um, because it's something that is thing to be like ashamed of and to not really reflect on at least not in a healthy way like most of the reflection about mistakes is kind of like a masochistic dwelling in anxiety whereas like I mean I really do think we can frame and I think there's a little bit about this especially in terms of business self-help or whatever where it's like learning from your mistakes but it's that is actually I think a productive narrative because I think if you're not making mistakes then you're not challenging yourself and you're not learning I mean I'm obviously on record about how I feel about risk (laughs) all over the podcast and all over the internet and so yes I completely agree that if you're not making mistakes you're not taking risks and if you're not making mistakes you're probably not being ethical either um and I you know I just I feel like you know, there are different kinds of mistakes, right? There are simple errors that happen that I think probably are not the things that you're talking about. And then there are serious lapses in judgment or a lack of information that leads to bad decision-making that hurts other people. Those kind of mistakes, I think, are where people become stymied and they lack inertia and they withdraw because they are afraid of the shame spiral of self-loathing that happens when they make mistakes that perhaps hurt other people, right? And so um, I think that that's sort of where... I'm interested in thinking through how people can have more emotional resilience so that they can manage the mistakes that they're going to inevitably make. And part of it is you're right. There's not a good narrative around mistakes, but part of it I think is that people suck at mind mapping themselves and other people. And so they can't apologize and they can't be accountable for their actions. And those I think are two important, you know, parts of being an adult human that people are really very bad at. Yeah. I mean, there are, there are mistakes that I think if you do apologize for, there should be (laughs) some, there should be a reparative element to your relationship. Mm -hmm. Um, But I mean, there are some like really vile things that people do, but those are not mistakes. You know, that's like a character situation. And I still think apology should be a part of that. Like apologize to the extent that it's possible. Um, but 
Yeah. Brad Kavanaugh yeah. is a bad person. He didn't have mistakes. He's a fundamentally busted, broken, shitty human being, period, point blank. So apologies do fall flat there. <laughs> yes. But I do think they should be made Agree. in the appropriate way. And and people should be accountable in that sense. But I think we're talking about the kind of thing that isn't re- like tied to your character necessarily. And I don't think we do a good job of even like forgiving people about those, which is why it's hard to be accountable and why it's hard to talk about them and to reflect in a healthy way. Because, I mean, it's so competitive. Like, people will undercut you for little mistakes, (laughs) even in situations where it doesn't make sense, necessarily. I think that goes both ways. I think that, as a culture, Americans are terrible at being emotionally generous. I also feel like they are terrible at receiving forgiveness. And part of it is because, as we've talked about since season one, shame is the overarching emotional vector that Americans exist on because Puritans and Christianity, et cetera, et cetera. And we've done that whole history already. But with shame being the guiding light of sort of the American ethos, it is very hard to hold space and do generosity for people. And it is hard to accept their forgiveness and not self-indulge with the shame spiral and self-loathing and ego nonsense that becomes, right, these little, little or large interpersonal dynamics that can really become poisonous. I have a bad relationship with mistakes. Not that I feel bad about making them, but I have been in environments where mistakes have like a weird penalty to them or when there's like a lack of training. I feel like almost every job I've had, the training has been completely non-existent. um, Right. yeah, Yeah. There's been zero onboarding, bad communication. They kind of just throw you, you know, into the fire and you just have to figure things out as you go. But then you're still criticized for mistakes a lot. And so that just, I begin my working relationships in those cases, like with an orientation of anxiety, because it's like, you know, I am doing things and I hope they're right. They often aren't. And so having to figure things out by making mistakes, I mean, I'm more resilient now because of that. But also, I mean, I, I don't think that's a good way to treat people. Yeah. I, you know, we've talked about resilience in the past and about how it's sort of a racist concept and white people get to build resilience where people of color or um, people who are disabled really just get massively penalized or queers or trans people. And so, you know, I feel like the ability to learn from mistakes is one that is highly raced and classed and gendered. Um, in ways that are important. On the other hand, everybody does make mistakes. And I think that you're right. We, we have a terrible training culture, like writ large. It doesn't, I mean, I mean, in higher ed, there's none. I'm surrounded by people that have never given any meta thought about how to train teaching assistants and how to think about writing exams and how to manage the politics of a university where people have jobs for life or, you know, how to mentor. I mean, even though these things have been part of higher ed for its existence, very few people meta think about them. And so the training is extremely poor. And so everything is sink or swim. So that creates the precarity that builds a bunch of the other deleterious relational, you know, habits uh, that we have in the United States, for sure. On the other hand, it just seems to me that um, we could all just do better being more open with one another about failure. And we're going to have to do that to move forward 
right, on all of these horrible issues that Trump's fascist tendencies have been bringing to light. And so in my case, as somebody who is an anti-racist, social justice, you know, activist scholar, I think a lot about what it means to create space for people who don't have the language or the experience who are mostly in white supremacist institutions to do better as comrades around race, sex, gender, disability, class things. And especially for the baby boomers who, as a generation, are so fucking bad at sharing resources or interpretive power or material things. I mean, they're so bad at sharing Part of this, I think, is an experiment in sharing space. The failure to acknowledge mistakes or to admit any kind of wrongdoing, I mean, it's some kind of like self-preservation narrative. But I mean, it breeds like emotionally void people. You know, if you're not allowed to like be anything but like a strong person, that's not, that doesn't make sense, you know, and it doesn't open yourself up to sharing and it doesn't open yourself up to generative work with other people because you're closed off. Yeah. I mean, I feel bad as a generational thing for the boomers because they're the largest youth generation in the history of the country. Their parents were super alcoholic, abusive people because of the war and poverty and the Great Depression and their own parents were trash because of all of those other things. And so they were both coddled and completely... um, they were coddled in this particular way because there were so many kids and everybody was so happy to be home from the war. And on the other hand, there was no emotional care for them. And so they turned out to be these extremely possessive asshole people um, as a generation. And so I feel like I've been talking a lot about how this moment politically is a generational one about sharing <laughs> shit. Um, and about accountability and about what it means to actually have to take responsibility for one's actions. And I feel like the Trump administration is about accountability and lack of accountability. And I feel like Me Too is about accountability and lack of accountability. And I feel like all of the race, sex, gender, class, ableist discourses right now are about accountability. And that is where the conversation is. So I think for people to participate fully as humans, there has to be space for them to make mistakes and for them to take responsibility for them and move forward. But also that takes a kind of care that we do not practice as a culture at all right now. Yeah, I don't think it's possible without generosity. And I think part of it is like this hyper-capitalism, like there's no space to make mistakes. Um because someone will take your job if, you know, they think they sense that there's weakness there. Mm-hmm. And so you are less likely to be accountable for your mistakes or admit them. Because if you have any kind of perceived weakness, someone's coming for you. And that type of environment cultivates a ton of bad behavior. I mean, you know, obviously I've expressed my ambivalence about call-out culture and I mostly hate it. Except for when people are doing totally fucking destructive, racist, sexist, homophobic, classist, ableist shit that has material consequences on other people, in which case I think there are very good reasons to call out. And I think that, that I guess, I would I would rather that we see that kind of discourse, the racist, classist, sexist, etc., that kind of discourse be the mistake <laughs> rather than not. 
right? I want that to be the mistake and be like, we're not doing that. Here's the way that you correct. And then people correct and we move on and we stop doing that shit. Instead of doubling down on the institutional discourses of racism, sexism, homophobia, transphobia, whatever, and then trying to make it that the critiquers are the complainers and they shouldn't have access to discourse that shifts that power. And so, you know, accountability is a complicated thing because it means that there will be consequences for actions, right? Mm -hmm. It means that there has to be some sort of public forum for the take back or the apology to happen. There has to be a public dimension of that, which is why shame is so often invoked, right? Because the mistake has to be perceived as something shameful in order to create that feeling in the person who can move, right, to become more progressive or to more open or democratic or whatever the goal is. We see a rejection of that. I mean, there's all of this um, negative conversation about political correctness, but really that is us asking you to be accountable for being shitty. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And so, but there is a pushback against that. Yeah. And that is like, because you do have to give up some of that power. um, To hurt people with your words and your actions. Yes, we are asking you to give up the power to hurt people with your words and actions because it's fucking racist or it's sexist or whatever. That is 100% what is happening. I'm less interested, though, in those folks than I am in... I'm less interested in the entrenched racists and stuff than I am in the people who are generally like, I want to do good and I literally do not... This moment is incomprehensible to me and I'm afraid of saying anything because I feel like I'm going to be critiqued. And so I want to talk about that as two different groups. And for the sake of conversation, I want to start around race, you know, because I do the race-gender work. And so, you know, I'm, I'm interested in especially white people who break down into two sides. One, the self-perceived good white person who constantly foists emotional labor onto their brown friends and colleagues and who's constantly performing white tears and the white women who produce overwork to compensate for their feelings of lack and then dump that overwork that they can't manage on their colleagues of color or their queer colleagues. That's one way, right? All of that destructive behavior around shunting emotional labor, performing fragility, emotional fragility, not managing race stress, and not taking accountability by shunting work. And then the other side is more progressive, where they're like, how do I dig in and what does it mean to be a comrade and how do I correct? And I think, you know, that in every space that we exist in, those two kinds of folks exist simultaneously. Right. So it's like, how do you manage those people? The self-perceived white good person um, who also does all of the destructive behavior. And then the person who's legitimately interested in being a comrade and is like, please help me to not make mistakes because I want to do right by these people. And to both of those groups, it seems like mistakes are clearly the leverage. Right. It's like they are afraid of being at the brunt, bearing the brunt of their own mistake, right? Which is where accountability works for both sides. But I think that the criers and the fragile people who are, you know, just dumping labor onto the more precarious folks, they're the more dangerous folks. And the ones who are actively trying to be comrades, who are able to listen, who are able to share interpretive space, who are willing to give up, you know, some material advantage to learn. Those people are the better comrades. They're better. They're better targets for camaraderie. You have to 
like not tie your mistakes to your sense of self-worth like you can still be um you can make mistakes you know in certain situations and people will hold you accountable for those mistakes um but you can still be Mm -hmm. an ally you can be a colleague a mistake won't destroy your sense of self about that how you play that role you know but i mean but you know in higher ed it does because if you make a mistake whoever gets to control the interpretive sphere of that mistake is the one who potentially can control what kind of career that you can have and because patronage is the way that loyalty is done in higher ed there are material consequences to being wrong that are that can be serious i think for me the biggest eye opener in higher ed has not been the toxic white men, the Brett Kavanaugh's, because they're everywhere, but in higher ed they are in higher degrees because they're they're more educated and higher ed attracts some sociopaths and they have more concentrated power. It's not them. It's actually the well-meaning white women that I am I think that has been my biggest awakening it, it, organizationally, institutionally, because the boomer women, they produce overwork and they were trained exclusively by men. And so their only tool in their emotional toolbox is brutality and shame. That's the only thing that they can do. They can't build. They don't do loyalty. They don't do generosity. They don't network. They don't share things. They hoard resources just like the white men do. And that's what their second wave feminism looks like. I think the biggest eye-opener generationally has been how much better the younger faculty members are at sharing and being generous and holding space and doing accountability, but also trying to avoid the shame spiral. And in some ways, I feel like higher ed then is representative of the larger American structure, right? Where there is this generational battle that's happening about defining what is acceptable social behavior and trying to transform, right, this corrupt, you know, American culture into something more productive and socially oriented. But the white women, I feel like, have the, the smallest threshold, actually, for making mistakes. And so they have all of these self-destructive behaviors. I feel like the white women have both sadist and masochistic tendencies where they externalize the punishment on others and then they massively internalize punishment on the stuff. That's why Brene Brown, I think, is such a popular, right, speaker right now is because she speaks to how middle-aged white women internalize mistakes and then externalize blame. Yeah, and the fact that vulnerability can be a generative thing Mm -hmm. um, rather than something (laughs) that will cause you pain and, like, lose you power. I mean, mean, they're reacting in some way to structural power, right? I guess, but I feel like for the white woman, it's manufactured precarity because they are so much more institutionalized and so much safer than the people of color or the queers or the trans folks. I mean, it's just like not even close. Like you really, you basically have to be found with a body in your house to get fired from higher ed if you're tenured. And the white women want to pretend, especially the middle-aged ones, that everything is like do or die, that they're still sink or swim, which I think fundamentally undermines their ability to be held accountable. 
because they're saying that the precarity means that they have no accountability because they're just doing what they need to survive. And that's not the case when you compare them to people of color in higher ed. And so they manufacture a precarity that justifies their shitty behaviors and justifies their overwork and justifies their white tears and justifies their fragility and justifies their domination in the workplace, whether it's in higher ed or elsewhere, as a way of trying to imitate white male power. This is why I think white supremacy is better than like any kind of notion of hegemonic masculinity because it's white women that are producing and reproducing white supremacy, especially in places where they are the majority of the workers. And that is higher ed for sure. I also think that, you know, white women use fragility as a way to be silent and to be complicit with structures that they benefit from as a result of their whiteness that maybe they're going to get a little dinged for as a result of their sex or gender, but mostly they're going to benefit from. And I, and I find that white women are the most intransigent about changing their behaviors around mistakes to become more transformative comrades in, in social spaces. I mean, I think that they're, that the thing is, is that it's a fucking anti-intellectual moment in American life. And so learning is also shamed. You are shamed if you want to be a learner. You're shamed if you like school. You're shamed if you're curious. I think all of that anti-intellectualism is what prevents us from being able to use experience through vulnerability as a way of learning. And I also think that it's a culture that fears emotional growth because that means that we are going to be in a place that's different from our peers. And so the loyalty of belonging to the larger social group around race or sex or class or whatever over determines our responses, especially when other people are being harmed. So rather than speak out to try and free these kids that the government has fucking stolen and putting into concentration camps and cages, we would rather not be the person in our family who's making a big deal or, you know, being so emotional or, you know, speaking out of turn or ruining the holiday or upsetting mom or whatever. And all of that creates a culture that's not just anti-intellectual, but one that promotes silence and complicity with violence. And so, you know, when I'm thinking about this moment as a hyper accountability moment, it's about interrogating what kinds of structures, linguistic or material, that produce social violence. And I don't care, you know, how good you think you are, if you're reproducing social violence, there has to be a reckoning about that. There has to be, because it's causing harm to others, and fragility is not a reason to not produce the critique of the behavior. You know, on the other hand, if you're trying to build coalition and you've got a bunch of crying white women, right, who can't hear the lesson, how do you bring them into the fold so they stop reproducing violence? I mean, it's a serious question about how to manage the white women so that they can take responsibility for their terrible fucking behaviors. It's, it, it, it's a serious question. I mean, I think it's happening on some scale. I mean, on the Internet, at least. I mean... There is recourse for like what happens publicly there in public spaces. So I don't know how that gets folded into institutions where people wield power poorly. I mean, institutions are generally not spaces for massive social transformation, right? So the bigger change is going to happen outside of the institution rather than inside of the institution because the institution just exists to perpetuate itself in the version that it's in. It's interested in stasis and not transformation. That's the whole point of institutionalization. 
But, you know, at a fundamental level in thinking about how to build coalition, it is about how to transform the need for anti-violence to be paramount as a defining feature of social engagement. And I think that the, the barrier is that quote-unquote good white people don't want to think that they produce violence or that they benefit from it when the reality is, is that they do both. And that is a thing that is hard to hear because it implicates a ton of decisions as mistakes, mistakes that have extremely ethical components. And I just think that the people, people cannot hear that because they are so fragile and they are so neurotic about hearing critique that they cannot manage their ego and their, their sense of self in the face of blowback about violence, even as they continue to benefit from it. The sad part about that is that they would feel so much more free, right, if they were doing the work to free themselves as well as others. They would feel less neurotic and wound up and depressed and anxious if they were living a more whole life that included more people and more generosity, right, and more reciprocity and more accountability, and they shared power, they would feel more whole and less terrible. But they can't even see that the thing that's making them anxious and neurotic is the fact that they're using them, their power to dominate other people. And where does it start, though? I Thomas mean, Jefferson. I will just pick an arbitrary <laughs> point. You, I mean, I'm being facetious, but well, also what I'm not. what I mean is, where does it start in terms of, you know, moving away from that? It starts, does it start with vulnerability and feeling more comfortable well, I, I joke about Jefferson only because Notes on the State of Virginia, which was one of his famous writings, is all about him, his ambivalence about being born into the upper class of white men and having to own slaves as a social obligation as a result of class. And so the ambivalence is always there, even for the white men, even for the founding fathers, even for the people who are the architects of social policy. They also have ambivalence about it. So A, a recognition of the ambivalence is important. But I just, I just think that that they have no sense about of imagination about how to imagine their affective or material labor working in ways that are more productive and less destructive. They don't have models for it. It's not on the TV machine. It's not in their own families. It's certainly not in the capitalist workplace that has fucked them and that they've also benefited from fucking others in. You know, they don't have models for it. So it's a failure of imagination. It's a it's just it's so anti-creative. And it's a failure of sharing. Yes. I mean, getting back to the ability. You know, I heard a thing. We've been talking a lot in the communication field lately about mentorship. And obviously we have, you and I have recorded an episode on mentorship where I, uh, I think, called myself unmentorable, which is still totally true. But one thing that I read last week in this conversation was about what it means to have younger mentors and what it means to think about the people who are younger than you or quote unquote under you having the ability to see things that you can't see. There's some humility that comes with being able to learn from people who are younger than you that I think the culture on the whole does not have. One of the reasons that I shit on John Kennedy is because he was a terrible foreign policy president and he was a dandy, an Irish Catholic dandy. 
One of the things that I think is remarkable about him is that he understood that the baby boomer generation would be a defining generation of American culture and try to redefine youth culture as having value in American public life. That is gone. That's probably his biggest contribution, I think, as president. And so the irony, of course, in this political moment is that the fucking baby boomers, who are the largest youth generation possible, are destroying the possibility of healthy childhoods for the whole fucking country. Right? We have no, we have no universal pre-K. We don't have any fucking FMLA. We have no social support for kids. We've got a bunch of hungry kids that have no food to eat. We've got a bunch in cages who are brown. We're stealing the babies from the mothers. I mean, it is the most regressive anti-youth policy, and it demonstrates how frail and brittle those boomers feel inside that they can justify the culture by doing all this anti-youth stuff. I mean, it's appalling. And so they cannot, they really, I think, cannot read the rage of the Gen Xers, the Millennials, uh, Gen Y. They can't see it. They can't feel it. They can't, they cannot hold space for it and they cannot do accountability for it. They can, but it's class is complaining. Yeah, right. It's class is entitlement. <laughs> you know, like this entitled class of youths, like classic projection, <laughs> classic projection. So they can't read it. They just don't have any space <laughs> to accommodate it. You know, yeah. it's completely dismissed. It's dismissed. Uh, it's dismissed as we eat our avocado toast and destroy Applebee's. Um, the baby boomers are a cautionary tale and how... A lack of generosity and social awareness and and ethics leads to a brittle, bitter generational cohort. And so, I mean, their neuroses are in, are in some ways so self made. Oh, for sure. We uh, we do this generation um, millennials do have a like a liberty. Um, of self-expression that I don't think was possible. Agree. And there are more like ways of being in the world that are legitimized now. Mm-hmm. And a ton of people live extremely unhappy lives. <laughs> so a ton of cookie cutter shit. And I understand the bitterness, but not being able to see that the change will help other people not <laughs> be that bitter and unhappy as they move through life. They're just like dragons hoarding gold, right? So they're going to get all their social security and work until 70 and hold jobs in the workplace, especially ones that still have pensions or tenure or what or whatever. The irony too is that despite the fact that the boomers as a generation have all of the fucking material advantages of the Cold War, they are still making the same mistakes that create their own desperation. And so to try and jostle them out of those habits, I think, is almost a fool's errand, which is why I think that uh, camaraderie and coalition building has to be pitched at people who have a different sense of responsibility around resources. And that has got to be Gen X and younger. And so I really just feel like it's a moment where 
the boomers in particular focus on mistakes as a way of justifying their own complicity in silence, not because they want to learn and do better, but they just kind of want to fumble their way through so they can collect their checks and suck all the money out through social welfare, even as they're fucking destroying social welfare. So I just, I don't think that they have the, I don't think that they have the motivation really to change. I just don't think that they have. <laughs> I think that they want to knit their fucking pussycat hats and they want to show up to one march and they want to sign one petition and they'll write a check or two to Elizabeth Warren or whatever. And that's the extent of th- that they're willing to participate in reimagining political culture. And that, I think, reeks of both privilege and fragility. And I think that there are good reasons then why there will be generational shame heaped upon them. <laughs> 